He said, you will find that all of your business and personal relationships are going to succeed or fail based on core values. And no accusations on anybody, no good or no bad on anybody, but your core values are going to misalign. That's why, you know, it's the ex-Mrs. Voss. We had a misalignment of core values. No bad on anybody, but just a misalignment of core values. Now, your question is, what are the little things? You know, what they played Little League when they were 13. You begin to scare out the core values over that if you listen. And you're going to understand whether whether or not the business relationship is going to succeed long term based on core value alignment. And that's where the value of those little details are, because they are precursors, you know, previews, harbingers, whatever your word is, as to whether or not this is going to succeed long term or whether or not you're spinning your wheels, wasting your time. It's going to be unpleasant and uncomfortable. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks Come from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. You're rocking with us on episode number 252. And today we're diving into a topic that each and every one of us does on a day-to-day basis. Whether we're newborn babies, whether we're grandparents, or anywhere in between that spectrum, we all do what we're talking about today. And what we are talking about today is negotiating. Now, you might be saying, well, Matt, I'm not in sales. I'm not in business. How do I negotiate? And I'm going to give you the answer in numerous different ways. Well, for starts, I negotiate with myself every morning, whether I'm going to have the green juice or I'm going to have an everything bagel toasted with cream cheese. In fact, I even negotiate whether that bagel will be toasted or not. The list goes on. We negotiate every single time we go to cross the street. If you're in a busy city like Manhattan and you see that hand flashing, five, four, three, two, and it's telling you like, hey, get the hell across the other side of the road, well, that's you negotiating. And even beyond that, we negotiate with our partners, our parents, our family, our friends, ourselves, the list goes on. Now, there's no one in the world better to talk about negotiation than our friend Chris Voss, the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group, author of the famed and prized book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And the reason Chris can negotiate like life depends on it is because he was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. During his 24 plus year tenure in the Bureau, he was trained in the art of negotiation by not only the FBI, but Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. He's also a recipient of the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement and the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. Now, Chris has taught negotiation at the University of Southern California, Georgetown University, Harvard University, Northwestern University, and abroad in Germany, Switzerland. The list goes on. We're really excited to have you here for this episode because of the power of this particular topic, and we're diving into the ins and outs. This is a full-on masterclass on negotiating. I'm going to urge you not only to share this episode, but also pull out a pen and pad, maybe on your iPhone, your Android, whatever you're listening to this on, you want to take notes and you want to share this episode because there's people in your life that can use it. But without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Chris Voss. Chris, you are a legend. I'm very grateful to have you here on Decoding Success. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to make an impact here. Really excited to have you. Yeah, thanks, man. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
Of course. Now, I want to start this off because I know you get a million and one questions about negotiation. So I actually want to ask you this. What is a question Chris wishes more people would ask him and how would he answer that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I throw that out there because, I mean, I've watched you on Tom Bilyeu, Lewis Howes, the list goes on. I know what questions you do get. I'm just curious if there was an area you wanted to potentially kick this off, kind of just opening up the show to you, seeing if there was anywhere you wanted to go with it. Oh, no, that's kind of you. I mean, I'm going to rely on your gut instinct for what your listeners are looking for. Okay, I, I definitely appreciate that. So let's start here then. We're negotiating daily, right? Whether that be with ourselves, our spouse, our family, our children, our business, or our clients, however you want to frame it. I'm curious to learn, is there any difference in those negotiations outside of the obvious, or is negotiation the same in its entirety? Well, the fundamentals are the same. You know, it's your best interest to be negotiating to try to have a long-term relationship, long-term trusted relationship, you know, whether you're a missionary or mercenary. And when I'm teaching the Black Swan Method, I will say, it's my feeling that a negotiation technique should pass muster for both missionaries and mercenaries. That mercenaries, just because it works. And the missionaries, because it's good for people. Mm. Now, point of fact, if you're completely mercenary, it's good for you in the long term to have great relationships. They're low maintenance. People trust you. You're more successful long term. Uh, Goldman Sachs exec a long time said greedy, yes, but long term greedy. It's about having great relationships. It's more profitable. You're better off if you have people around you that you can trust. So that's the foundation. Now, does it change depending upon the person? What really changes is their perspective on you. And empathy is really about understanding and articulating their perspective on you. And your spouse is going to have, your significant other is going to have a different perspective on you than a Starbucks person is, or your colleague, or your coworker. But the longer you work with someone, the closer that perspective on you, that relationship is to the relationship of a spouse, long-term relationship of trust, an intimate trusting relationship. So you got to really kind of adapt to how the other person sees you, which is where a lot of hostage negotiators actually get it wrong. And here's why. Because when I'm on a a hostage negotiator or when I was on a suicide hotline, if somebody on the other side was angry, I'd say, you sound angry. And that would be very validating for them. And consequently, they feel heard. And there's some neuroscience involved, which would dissipate the anger. What I didn't realize was I was saying it as a neutral detached third party, which on a suicide hotline I was primarily. It's a hostage negotiator I was primarily. Now, same time frame, I'm in a conversation with a woman who's now the ex-Mrs. Voss, and she's angry and upset on the topic we're discussing, and I go, you sound angry. And she blows as a nuclear explosion in front of me. You know, like brain matter splatters all over my face. She, (laughs) and what I failed to take into account was she didn't see me as a neutral third party anymore. I can't say you sound angry. I read a book recently. A friend of mine wrote a follow-on book, Eric Barker's first book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Phenomenal book. Science of Success. There's a lot of research. Eric's got a great blog called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I read his blog. I read his first book. Eric's second book plays well with others. He's with NYPD doing training. They're showing him how it works. And the PD's guys say, yeah, but this doesn't work at home. Well, what doesn't work at home is you acting like you're a neutral third party. 
and applying empathy without adjusting to how the other person sees you and the perspective. So what I should have said, instead of you sound angry, I should have said, clearly I've made you angry. That changes the perspective. Now I'm sure the things that I've done have contributed to the situation. Now I didn't, now that's not an admission that they did. That's your perspective, you feel. And that's where the adaptation, same basic skills, same basic dynamic. Empathy is the other person's perspective, not yours. Therefore, the other person's perspective on you is going to shift whether or not you agree with their perspective. And that's why it applies in all situations. But it's very much like tailoring. I go in to get fitted for a suit. The tailor's going to get out his tape measure, his needle and thread, bobby pins. He's going to fit me for a suit. Shaq goes in and gets fitted for a suit. Taylor's going to use the same tools. He's just going to have to adapt to who he's tailoring to. Absolutely. Now, I'm curious because I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. I guess breaking this down even further, that empathetic perspective. So for instance, from your spouse to you, from a business client to you, the empathetic perspective can also change based on situation as well, not just from a relationship perspective. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, empathy is what's the other side's perspective. Now, the first step is being, as they say, you know, see it through their eyes. If that's by itself, it's like hope. Hope is not a strategy. Hope is an inadequate strategy. Seeing it through their eyes is only the first step. The second step is articulating back to them. Empathy is an action. Tactical empathy is an action. Articulating back to them where you believe their perspective is. Even if you violently disagree, you can say, before I disagree, here's what I think your perspective is. Right. A million and one questions just based off my mind is racing. First one being with all that you've learned through your training, through your real world experience, what you're teaching, I'm just really curious, how do you deploy that? Right? Like I'm just thinking to myself right now, if I'm in a situation where I'm negotiating with anyone, myself or whomever it may be, but I want to apply what Chris has taught me, how do you apply everything or should you not be applying everything and should you just be applying, you know, a top three things, if you get what I'm saying? Well, you learn it a little at a time and you get you small stakes practice for high stakes results. Okay. You know, you start doing, calling out the emotions that you see, that you just see in somebody's face. Like you look trouble. You look like you're having a good day. Bad day? You know, you don't try to change their emotion. Like you could see somebody who looks really troubled and you might say, how are you? Now they look troubled. So if you say, how are you? The first message that you're sending them is you're not getting the vibe, the signals they're sending off. You're oblivious to them. You're either Mm. either oblivious to them or you're intentionally ignoring them. But if somebody's troubled, you say, you know, you look troubled. You look unhappy. You look busy. You look like you're having a great day. Like, you know, that's one of the reasons I go. I love going to airports because everybody works in an airport is stressed. (laughs) (laughs) So you look at them, you go, look like you're having a bad day. And they appreciate the heck out of it. You made their day better. But I'm, you know, I'm getting in my practice. You know, a TSA guy the other day, since most people are stressed, you know, I see this TSA guy, he's got an indifferent look on his face. And I look at him and I go, tough day? And he kind of goes, no, not really. And I go, just another day. He goes, yeah, that's it. Mm. I'm getting my practice in. You know, it's the hostage negotiators, we call it emotion labeling. You know, we, in the Black Swan Method, we just call it labeling. But, you know, it's really... The real basic core MacGyver multi-tool skill is the label. And the more you practice your labels, the more you become like the brilliant musician who wrote a brilliant song. I remember Jackson Brown, songwriter from the 70s and 80s. 
you know, the guys that live next to him would hear him playing the same basic melody over and over and over and over. And then suddenly he'd add to it. And he wrote, he was a Grammy winning artist. He sold millions upon millions of albums just by practicing the same melody over and over and over and then letting the art come to him, let the genius come to him within the practice. He got results from his repetitions, his basic repetitions. Go out and start practicing on your everyday interactions, just calling out people's emotions to him. And you'll find that your business negotiations will really begin to accelerate. I'm curious to learn, Chris, Going back to that TSA practice experience you had where you know you kind of questioned the TSA officer's emotions by saying tough day, right? The, the way you framed it, it sounded like a question. I'm curious yeah, how important exactly. it is to call out those emotions from a negative and a positive perspective, the negative ones as a question, the positive ones as a statement. Is there any importance with that? Now, yeah, yeah, you caught a great distinction there because tone of voice is either declarative or a statement, downward inflecting, tough day or inquisitive, questioning. Sounds like a question, tough day? You know, those two things are huge. And when you begin to practice back and forth on those, you'll make up your own mind. That's where the art of negotiation really comes in, which you only get from the practice. Now, there are going to be tiny little elements. Like, it's shocking what you can get away with as an inquiry and versus an accusation versus a statement. Like, I can say, you thought I was lying? Or I can say, you thought I was lying. Or I can say, you thought I was lying? Right, right. Now, those are three, those, all three of those landed vastly differently. You know, the, the last one was, I'm curious, you thought I was lying? You know, that lands really gently. You thought I was lying. Now, that's not an accusation. That's just a recognition. You know, I said it gently. I, you know, downward inflection, declarative, didn't want my voice to be harsh or distant. You thought I was lying. Like, you're an idiot. You thought I was lying? That's an accusation. Now, you could be in a business deal. You could be in an interpersonal relationship. You know, you thought I was lying? Because the other side, if you said something inaccurately, you know, people always interpret it as an intentional lie when it was an accident or they didn't believe you or there are all these, you know, reasons that someone interprets that a lie when it's not or like you told somebody something like, look, I, I got news for you. You do this, this is going to happen. And they go ahead and do something and you hit them with the consequences. You you know, to, to bring them back to that moment, you thought I was lying? Mm. You know, are you kidding me? When, you know, as, as, a, as a boss, when I said if we disagreed, you were going to be in a lot of trouble. When I said if you didn't follow my direction, I said you were going to be in a lot of trouble. You, you thought I was lying? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wasting an employee for disregarding what you said and how you say that is makes all the difference in the world on how it's going to land. So I love this power of tonality. It's very evident there's a lot of power in tonality. But when you bring in the other factor of emotion, which is usually what has a drastic impact on how we speak, where do the two mesh, right? Because when your emotions are high, whether you're talking, I mean, it really comes out with personal relationships, right? Whether it be family, whether it be children, whether it be with our spouse, and even on the flip side of it, right? In business, there, there's definitely tempers that flare. I'm just curious, how do you control your emotions from taking over your tonality to, I guess, remain level-headed so that you're actually in full control of it? Well, if you can control your own tonality, you can control your emotions. Okay. And, you know, I, I, the voice that I refer to is the late night FM DJ voice. 
Like when I'm upset, if I can get myself to use that voice, I will calm myself down. You know, my counterpart is not the only one that hears that voice. I hear it too. There's a neuroscience reaction there that calms both of us down. And I get upset. People get under my skin. As soon as someone, you know, I, I react badly to condescension. You know, I react badly to not being listened to. I react badly to being lied to. You know, being disregarded is a great way to get in trouble with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's <laughs> a good thing you know these listen- triggers. Yeah, well, you know, the downside of being a great listener is your tolerance for people who don't listen to you really gets diminished, really gets thin. Now, right. people not listening is probably the biggest problem in all interpersonal interactions, whether they be business interactions or whether they be close, a significant other interactions. Not listening is the most common problem out there. Waiting to speak is most what most people do and versus listening. They're waiting for their turn to speak or they're constructing their message. So then when you have a very low tolerance for not being listened to, that's <laughs> a problem. <laughs> It's like, it's, you know, because it's, it's such a common issue out there. Absolutely. I'm curious, how do we train that muscle, right? How, how do we become better active listeners as opposed to, I mean, this is a little bit of a different situation here. I have to ask you a question, you know, from a podcasting perspective, but I'm saying to myself, all right, how could I be better? So I'm curious, like, how do I become a better active listener or, you know, even the people that are just listening to this as opposed to waiting for our turn? Well, it's really proactive listening. I mean, first of all, most people, the very first step that they take beyond waiting for their turn is they waiting for, aha, gotcha. They're waiting for the gotcha moments, flaws in the argument, whatever it may be, you know, if you're argumentative. Now, at that, that gotcha moment, instead of attacking, that's actually an opportunity to go a whole different direction into good stuff. Like you're actually started to listen to get the gotcha moment. Aha, you said, but now, aha, it's not what you said before. You have to actually be listening to be able to engage in that kind of thought. And so you've at least leveled up a little bit, level up in that same moment, but instead, instead of listening for contradictions, listen to what's making them say this? I mean, what's this mean to them? Where's this coming from? They, they're reacting in a weird way. It's got to be pressures here that I don't see. If you start to begin to think about what's driving them, in the gotcha moment, now you start getting what a lot of people would have called active listening. It, it really is proactive listening. What are you listening for? If you're listening for the gotcha moments, that's proactive. If you're listening for the meaning moments, the driving moments, what's driving them that is hidden, they're hiding from you, what's driving them that they're blind to? Now you begin to get some insight. You can accelerate how you interact with them, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. The only thing that affects agreement timeline, relationships are the only thing that affect deal timelines. Empathy is the relationship accelerator. Mm, I love this. Uh, It it leads me to go back to, because very much so, you, you refer to negotiation as an art. There's a lot of delicacies to what we're talking about here. A lot of, and I, I don't even want to call them intricacies, but it's clearly an art. And I'm just curious to learn. I've heard you say that your son, Brandon, is a star, right? He runs your company. He's a star when it comes to negotiating. Clearly, you are too. What is it that makes someone a great artist of nego- of negotiating, right? Like, what are those characteristics? So that's why I bring up your son. Like, what are those characteristics that your son has that, you know, we could focus in on? Uh, if you enjoy figuring things out, you know, okay. uh, some people would call it, you know, how coachable are you? 
How much can you learn? If you enjoy figuring things out, you know, negotiation is process of discovery. I mean, you're figuring stuff out. You're looking for clues. If you're really intrigued by figuring stuff out, learning, getting better, you know, characteristic. I always love bookstores because bookstores are full of ideas. I love learning. Like you put me in a Barnes and Noble early in the morning with a cup of coffee. I'm going to be happy camper for hours just looking at a book because I love ideas and I love learning. Now, Brandon's makeup is a little bit different than mine. We're, you know, we're, we're similar in a lot of ways, but he's always had a knack for figuring stuff out. And I don't know exactly what this is, but his ability to figure stuff out and assemble things in his mind. When he's about three years old, I'm putting together this cabinet and, you know, it's a do-it-yourself thing. I got tools laid out and I'm putting this thing together and he's watching closely and he starts handing me tools just before I need it. And I'm like, that's interesting he's figuring this out. He's assembling it. He's anticipating. I still don't know exactly how to define that genius, if you will. But that's a genius that I don't have. It's a different genius. Makes him a great negotiator. I love ideas. I love to learn. I get pretty good at it with slightly different characteristics. And that's always been one of his great strengths. So you just mentioned a very, very powerful word. You mentioned anticipate. I'm just curious from a negotiation perspective, how do we anticipate but ensure that we remain present so that we're not missing anything that might give us a cue or a clue. Right. Yeah. Well, then anticipation is basically understand human nature and then understand a human in front of you. And so what are the rules? The rules are people are basically negative. We're wired. Our survival wiring, which we all wake up with in the morning, is roughly 75% negative. If you anticipate more problems than that occur, you will live. If you anticipate fewer problems than will occur, you will die. <laughs> and that's how the caveman survived. You know, I realized that uh, last year it got really cold at this time of year, but, you know, I'm optimistic. I don't think it's going to get cold this year. And then that guy froze. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the survival wiring, by definition for human beings to survive, which we've all inherited, is pessimistic. Yeah. Anticipate more problems than occur and you will survive. So that's what we proactively look for. The human being in front of you is going to be largely negative. Mm. All right. So that, that's a given. That's understanding human nature. Now, neuroscience has told us that this hostage negotiation technique, calling out negative emotions, actually doesn't work because it's hostage negotiation. It works because they're people. And people are mostly negative. So anticipate the person in front of you because they are wired to be negative. So you got to call out the negative emotions as soon as you hear them. Sounds like this bothers you. Sounds like you're under a lot of pressure. Sounds like you've been struggling with this for a long time. Those are the calling out of the negative dynamics. Now, the crazy thing, which neuroscience hasn't shown us yet, but that as practitioners of this art, black swans know, if I call it a negative that doesn't exist, I don't plant it, I inoculate from it. Mm. Now, that's where you really gain a massive competitive advantage on everybody else because most people, negative emotions, they think that, first of all, if they call it out, that it amplifies it. Their experience of denying negatives has caused that flawed conclusion. There's a difference between denying and calling out. The elephant in the room, you don't get rid of the elephant in the room by saying the elephant ain't there. And we didn't know that we could get rid of the elephant in the room by simply calling it out and it would shrink. There's an elephant right there. Yeah, it is, but I'm not that impressed with it. Now, then, proactively, if you call them out, you don't speak them into existence, you inoculate from them. You know, if I get something that you're not going to like, I'm going to say, look, you ain't going to like this. 
This is going to sound harsh. You're going to think I'm being greedy. You're thinking I'm, I don't, I don't care about you. And then you'll be like, all right, what is it? And then you'll be like, well, that wasn't that bad. And that's really super counterintuitive. It's very much like the dynamic in hostage negotiation, which every hostage negotiator had to come to grips with. Because right. there's almost always elements of suicide in hostage negotiation. And like addressing suicide, whether you're on a suicide hotline or whether you're on the hostage negotiator, a hostage negotiator has got to say, you're thinking about killing yourself. Now, we all feared that if they weren't thinking about that, that the, the bad guy would say, no, I wasn't. But now that you mentioned it, I'm going to the top of the roof and I'm going to jump and I'll see you on the way down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, every hostage negotiator goes through that. We can't say that. That'll make them kill themselves. Now, as a matter of fact, not only it'll be a relief for them. And if they weren't thinking about it at all, they wouldn't say that they're, they're going to say, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. That's stupid. Right. You don't speak it into existence by calling out the negative. And that's one of the great accelerators of the people that when they fully embrace the black swan method, they make so many more deals and they actually enjoy life that much more because they're not worried about the negatives. They know they can, they know they got a fire extinguisher that's going to put them on. I'm curious to learn, Chris, you know, just hearing you speak, it it brings to mind, you know, you're talking about knowing the person we're we're talking about, you know, our negative bias and whatnot. I'm just really curious from your experience with the FBI, maybe even beyond that, how much of your training was psychology based to the point where you're able to pick up, let's just say someone on the other end of the phone in any situation, maybe having quote unquote, for lack of better terms, like mommy issues or daddy issues, you know, like to the point where you know you know what you're able to give them if that makes sense yeah well psychology is such a soft science like if you had a psychology convention and you got 50 psychologists together they'd argue about everything (laughs) why is that you know are you freudian are you behavioral are you cognitive psychologists i mean like so many different schools of thought in psychology they can't agree on anything right and so to try to to try to apply psychology is a challenge. So, you know, I've all, we always, in hostage negotiation, crisis intervention in business, we always stayed away from psychology terms because I say sociopath or I say psychopath or I say narcissist. You know, the big uh, narcissist, that's the most popular word today. What's the difference between a narcissist and a sociopath? Yeah, I, I don't know. What's the difference between bipolar and manic depressive? It depends upon the year. So what do I say in a psychological term? Mommy issues, daddy issues. What does that mean? It then trying to diagnose that can really distract you from the behavior. So we just always focus on the behavior. You know, we get, I know, for example, in certain limited circumstances in hostage negotiation, if we got a male on the other end of the phone, and it's always a male, you know, women just not taking hostages. But if he's expressed a lot of anger towards women, it's not that he hates women. It's more that he's, it's as a result of being hurt and misunderstood by them. We put an understanding woman on the phone, dude's out in five minutes. Wow. And everybody on our end would be like, you can't put a woman on a phone. This guy hates women. He's got nothing but anger for women. You put one on that uses active listening. And it's happened over and over and over again. You put a woman on a phone, dude's out. You know, I mean, door, door door's not hitting him in, in the backside as he's getting out the front door so quick. Mm. So the misdiagnosis you know, he's got woman issues. Well, you know, maybe not. 
let's focus on the behavior and let's not get too crazy on the psychology and see what happens. Yeah, that's powerful. That's that's really powerful. I actually want to backtrack a little bit. I'm always curious to ask this. You know, you said put you in a Barnes and Noble with a cup of coffee in the morning. It really does what it needs to do for you. I'm just curious, what are the top books that have impacted you? And before going there, I just want to just let everyone know, never split the difference. I've read this. I want to say, how long has this been out? Six years now, Chris? Six years, yeah. Six years. I had to have read this four or five years ago. So I just wanted to throw that out there for the people that are listening and not seeing the video that uh, we'll make sure that I have the link for this book, an incredible book, something that I probably need to go back to because it's been a while in the show notes of this episode. But I'm curious, what are the books that have impacted you the most? You know, first of all, another book on the screen with me, Derek Gaunt, member of my team, Applying Tactical Empathy to Leadership, Ego Authority Failure. It's a leadership book. Okay. Derek is a genius. And you know, but he's a practitioner like me. You know, he's not an academic PhD, multi PhD who says words you don't even know what they mean. I mean, he's a practitioner. So, Ego Authority Failure is a great book. A lot of people read it just to more fully understand tactical empathy. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was a leadership book was a fringe benefit, but trying to apply the same skill in a different environment makes the skill more three dimensional. So, but I'm also into books about learning, I'm into books about performance. Even Kotler's book, The Rise of Superman, is a great book. You know, it's about the science of flow. He's got a follow-on book called Stealing Fire that I love also. Kotler's got a bunch of books out there. Those are my two favorites. Daniel Coyle wrote a great book on getting better as a human being, how to get better, called The Talent Code. I love that book. We've actually got one of our blog posts is a top 12 book for books for expert negotiators. And many of those books are non-negotiation books, but if you look at negotiation as a human performance skill and how to get better as a human being, then you start, you want to look at what Kotler says about flow. You want to look at what Coyle says about learning. You begin to understand what are the, the things that supplement your ability to negotiate it because it's about being a better human being. I love that. I love that. We've actually had Steven on the show. We we had a really, really good conversation similar to this one. It was uh, very free flowing. A lot of questions were asked and answered in a mind blowing way. So I definitely appreciate that. I wrote that down for myself. I, to transition a little bit here, Chris, by any means you think this question should not be answered, you let me know. I'm just really curious to bring this to present day. In regards to, and I know you, I know you know sports. I heard you talk about Cooper Cup, Brittany Griner in Russia. If this is too yeah. political to go there, you say, nah, 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 I'll go cut this out. You, uh, you, some people aren't going to like my answers. I'm just really curious. I don't know all the ins and outs, but I want to know from a negotiation perspective. Like, I mean, she's a superstar here in, in America, without a doubt. She obviously plays overseas as well. I understand that she broke the law overseas, but whatever the intricacies are, what's what would be the process of negotiating in, in that scenario to to bring her home? Well, one of the reasons the Biden administration is not weighed into this loud and a couple of reasons. And I happen to like this is one of the few things that I think, you know, Biden handles some of this stuff well. First of all, you're going to keep a low profile on it because you don't want the Russians to think that she's this great big bargaining chip that they can extract a lot out of the U.S. for. Okay. There's a little bit of face savings got to go on here. Let's let's proceed on the hypothesis. And I don't know that this to be true. All the earmarks are there that she broke their law. Now, whether or not it was breaking a law in the United States I don't matter. You break the law overseas, you know, you, you're probably going to pay for it. Right. So the Russians, the Russians would love to give her back. They need to save face. Let them save face. You know, they, they and my understanding is I, I was shocked that she wasn't being returned when when she pled guilty. Now, why they got to go through a trial? They don't want to be embarrassed. You know, the more tension is brought to Brittany Griner, the more it's possible the Russians are going to be embarrassed over the whole affair and not turn her loose. So 
you know, if you don't turn it into a diplomatic in- incident, let her plead, convict her, let her go home on bond. They know that's nonsense. You know, lots of countries say, you know, post a $100,000 bond and you can co- go home as long as you show back up to go to jail. They know she's not coming back. That's, right. that's done all the time. Let the Russians save face and keep this low profile and she comes home. And I think the Biden administration is trying to keep it low profile because they realized two things. She probably broke the law and what she did wasn't that big a deal. And if it turns into an international incident, they're going to probably have to trade a real Russian murderer, drug dealing killer to get her back. And they're willing to do that. They're going to trade out for her. They're hoping they just don't have to put too much on the table. What makes me most interested in this speaking with you is the fact that it's almost, and based off what you're saying, it's almost expert versus expert versus, and I'm not calling anyone that, you know, you mentioned stories in the book. I'm not mentioning that they're, or saying that they're not experts because you're talking about kidnappers and all of that. Maybe they're experts in that field. But when it comes down to the negotiation aspect of this, you're talking about the administration from the US, you know, playing it smart by keeping it low profile. But then on the side of Russia, shouldn't they also be aware of the US, you know, and how they're playing this from a low profile perspective, like knowing what they're doing? You well, get what I'm saying? Yeah. And they it, just because you know what the other side's doing doesn't mean it makes you mad. Okay. You know, the other side's treating you with respect. It's not gonna make people mad. Mm. Are we trying to cut a better deal because we're being respectful? Yeah, but we're trying to be respectful anyway. Right. As, as, you know, you, you don't hurt your position in any way, shape, or form by being respectful of the other side. You probably increase the chances that you're going to make a better deal. Right. And emotions are, are negotiations are cut over emotional issues. Peter, yeah. Are you embarrassed? Did you feel that you got as much as you could? Not did you get as much as you could. Did you feel like you got as much as you could? That's an emotional definition. Like in kidnapping. You know, I'd, I'd have FBI commanders saying, when is this going to be over? When the bad guys feel like they've gotten everything they could. Not that they got everything they could, but they felt like it. Mm. As soon as somebody feels like they got a good deal or feels like they did the best they could have done, they make the deal. Right. That's powerful. I'm curious, what was the experience in your personal life, your professional life, that sparked the light bulb that said, Chris, you're going to be successful at what you do? Well, I enjoyed it. I don't, I don't know that the light bulb really gets maybe, you know, early on, I volunteered on a suicide hotline because I want to become a hostage negotiator. My first few calls on a hotline, they were like, wow, you, yeah, that was good. Your tone of voice is great. That was really good. And I kind of went like, what I do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so any anytime you start, you, you experience success in anything, then you like it. Human beings like success and it's fun to succeed. And so, you know, as, as soon as you start getting any kind of success, then, you know, what are the secondary benefits? Secondary benefits were, you know, I was helping people. I went, you know, I went on the suicide hotline to learn a skill. And a lot of people volunteer on suicide hotlines to help people and they get burned out. I went there to learn a skill and the secondary benefit of helping people, you know, made it fun for me. So that, you know, that's kind of how it evolved. You mentioned the word success. One thing that I used to ask on this show, I mean, we're, we're literally 250 plus episodes into this. We're almost at four years. So I kind of transitioned out of asking this, but I'm curious, you mentioned the word success. What does that word mean to you? Well, you know, I guess really good outcomes from both sides. You know, okay. are, we, are we better off now than we were five minutes ago, 20 minutes ago? What about we, on a personal level? Yeah, well, you know, I, I like... Look, I like making people happy. I like helping people have better lives, whether or not they're people that work in the Black Swan 
group or whether or not the people that we serve, like, you know, we're shopping for an executive now is just having a conversation with the executive search firm. And the, the, the rep told me, says, you know, your people like working for the Black Swan group. And I go, well, yeah, you know, it matters. Number one, we work hard. So you better like it or it's going to kill you. But if you like it and you have fun with it, you know, we run hard. We do a lot. It matters to us that we're helping. I mean, literally helping people have better lives. We hear on a regular basis, somebody say, this deal is going to change my life. We hear that regular. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Now, we make a pretty good living while we're at it. But, we, you know, we like to think we're putting more good in the world than we're indulging ourselves with. Chris, do you give me permission to play devil's advocate with you right here? <laughs> Go for it. I'm curious because you mentioned that success on a personal level is, you know, what you could do for other people. But if you couldn't do that for other people, would you not feel successful? I don't know. You know, you start to get into, I don't know, you start to get into almost a circular conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I do like my solitary time, but you know, that the book is sold as well as it's sold. And people are like, this book is helping me have a better life. Yeah. You know, if I were isolated, uh, would I be happy? Nah, I, you know, I need to feel like, you know, I'm, I have a purpose and I'm contributing to the planet. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate that. I just wanted to throw it out there. I'm always curious, right? That's why I'm a podcaster, right? I, I have a sense of curiosity that I, I'm just always trying to learn. So I definitely appreciate the vulnerability there. But getting back to negotiating, I'm curious to learn how to understand if the window for negotiating is open or not. Now, you might have answered that already by talking about relationships and knowing, you know, where you stand with the other party, but I'm curious to learn like are are there any cues to understand if the window for negotiating is open? Yeah, and hostage negotiators is successful about 93% of the time, which means 7% of the time they're not going to make the deal. Okay. And you know, so then we call it people you're never going to make a deal with the 7%ers. You know, so yeah, that's the case in real life. Now, the percentage of somebody that's interacting with you but has no intention of making a deal with you is playing you for the fool. You know, there's a saying if you don't know who the fool in the game is, it's probably you. Mm. Now, that was really the biggest adjustment from hostage negotiation to business negotiation because the percentage of people that are looking for free consulting, they're kicking the tires, they're looking for competing bid is very high. Right. And that initially made no sense to me. Like I can remember hearing about it in movies, you know, they call it the rabbit, you know, you're going to, everybody's going to chase you, but you're never going to get the deal. You just had to drive the price down. I remember seeing a Vince Vaughn movie a long time ago where he was business, you know, and, and they were the rabbit and they were being played. And I thought that doesn't happen in real life. That's such a waste of time. It's stupid to do that. Mm. In point of fact, it happens a lot that either you're never going to make a deal it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Well, the deal is going to be very exploited. It's a sin to take a long time to get a bad deal. So sorting those out is a priority and fairly easy once you're willing to accept that the dynamic exists. I'm talking to a sales guy the other day, and he's talking about, all right, so if somebody calls a salesperson and is really hot to get a price, he says, that's a sign they are a buyer. If they want a price, they're a buyer. Yeah, but they ain't buying from you. They want a price from you because there's somebody else they want to buy from. Mm. The only thing they're interested in is your price. They want your price to drive down the price on the favorite. You are the fool in the game. So there are certain earmarks and behavior like that in business deals, business negotiations, where either you're never going to get the deal 
or it's going to be long, painful blood money, and you shouldn't do it because it's going to take you five times as long to execute, which means you just took an 80% cut in pay. I got to call you out on this, Chris. I'm just curious. I'm picking up on this. I've heard you with an East Coast accent, and I've heard you with a Midwest <laughs> accent. I, I got like I can't tell which one you're from. It's both. It's okay. So I'm not going crazy over here. I'm just like, what's going on? No, I grew up in a small town in Iowa. And so that's the Midwestern accent. And then I I spent three years in Kansas City, which is a southern town, really, even though it's in a it's in the exact pretty much exact middle of the U.S. Most of the people live in Kansas City migrated up from the south a lot. And then I spent 14 years in New York City working with NYPD. And that's where that's where the traces of that accent come. I was gonna say I heard the southern midwestern accent in the beginning and what you were just ranting on right now, which was beautiful. I mean, I, I heard the New York. I'm from New York City. That's where I am right now. So I, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? But in regards to I I try to. I try to. That's how you gotta become a good podcaster, right? I mean, it's all about listening. But in regards to negotiation prep, this is something that has me really curious right now. Knowing that you're going into a negotiation, uh, we're talking a lot about business here. And this could be applied anywhere, right? This could be applied going on a date. This could be applied in so many different ways. What did you do to prep yourself for those calls professionally? Or what do you suggest someone someone does, whether that be mentally or physically? Like, What's the prep? Well, the the really depending upon the circumstance, like a date, like the prep is just to just really be open into actually listening. Okay. Actually listen. Now that's going to be the prep in in a business negotiation also, but you know, uh, having proactively addressing negative concerns in business is far more important than proactively addressing negatives on a date. Mm. Like you wouldn't proactively address negatives on a date. You just be open to listen and actually listen to somebody and listen for the meaning right. and where they're coming from. Because the other person going to open up, whether it's yeah. a date, whether it's a social interaction. About three or four years ago, when I'm living in L.A., I'm, I'm at a Hollywood party. And there's a big shot Hollywood producer there that everybody's just enthralled with. And, you know, they are knocking themselves out to try to impress this guy. You know, I finally get into a conversation after the throng is done with him. And I'm actually listening to him. And pretty soon he says, Man, I haven't told anybody that in 20 years. Wow. Because I was actually listening. I was genuinely curious. You know, and I, and I did I did the tab, taboo stuff. You know, I found out he was Jewish. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? He, he's from Argentina. Like, what? But European complexion. Like, what are you, what are you running from the Nazis? Your, fa- your grandparents <laughs> running from the Nazis? Well, how the hell do you guys end up in Argentina? And he's like, oh, yeah. You know, and then he starts laying all this stuff out for me. And I'm taking a social cues. You know, I'm joking around with him. I'm actually listening. I'm putting together the pieces of the puzzle. And pretty soon this guy's telling, and telling me stuff he hadn't told anybody in 20 years. You know, those are delightful conversations. Now, business, you want to listen for that kind of stuff too, but business, you know, it's it's conflict. It's, you know, it's a, it what appears to be a competition for scarce resources. On the surface, underlying, it's not. It's a great collaboration. But on the surface, if, if it appears to be a competition for scarce resources, the other side is going to be reacting negatively. You got to be proactively addressing negatives. And many of those negatives are predictable. People are yeah. worried about wasting their time. People are worried about you being greedy. People are worried about you exploiting them. You can say, look, you're, at some point in time, you're probably going to wonder whether or not you're wasting your time. You know, that's how you proactively address it. Absolutely. There's certain givens that are always going to be there in business, time and money. The question that's coming to mind, I want to say it's, I guess, sort of fucked up, but it's realistic. You know, you're, you're having a conversation. I'm not 
you know, I'm going to use you as an example because you just, you know, you were mentioning the producer or the director from in, at that Hollywood party. In a situation like that, right, you, you know, you have someone that you want to speak to and you potentially want an outcome from them. But in reality, you don't really give a shit about those small little intricacies. And I'm not saying you, Chris, I'm just saying in general, right? Like there, there's someone, for instance, I know someone that I want a business deal with. This is hypothetical. There's someone I want a business deal with, but I don't really give a shit about where they're from or you know what they did when they were 13, where they played little league baseball. But I understand how that little buildup could get you to have them open up and to build that relationship and, and get you to where you want to be from a negotiation perspective. I guess what I'm asking here is, is there like a fake it till you make it type of thing going on or? No, you know, and I, I probably didn't va- uh, value those nuances myself personally for a long time. Two out of three of us don't really care about the little details. Until, you know, my company, we run EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. we got an EOS coach, helps us work on it all the time. Made a massive difference in the company, massive. We, you know, we're three people, all family members, and, you know, now we're about 18. So our EOS coach says, all right, let's sit down and talk about your core values. Like, what do you mean? Work hard, learn, don't lie. Have, you know, roll up your sleeves, help. Um, core values, what are you talking? No, 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 no. He said, you will find that all... A-L-L, all of your business and personal relationships are going to succeed or fail based on core values. And no accusations on anybody, no good or or bad on anybody, but your core values are going to misalign. That's why, you know, it's the X misses boss. We had a misalignment of core value, no bad on anybody, but just a misalignment of core values. Now, your question is, what are the little things? You know, what they played Little League when they were 13. You begin to scare out the core values over that if you listen. And you're going to understand whether whether or not the business relationship is going to succeed long term based on core value alignment. And that's where the value of those little details are, because they are precursors, you know, previews, harbingers, whatever your word is, as to whether or not this is going to succeed long term or whether or not you're spinning your wheels, wasting your time. It's going to be unpleasant and uncomfortable. And you want to seek out those that your core values align, or if they don't align, you want to know that as soon as possible, because you're going to run into trouble. Right. That is powerful. That is powerful. And I definitely appreciate the perspective. I I only got you for a few more minutes here. I'll ask you two more questions. If someone picks up Never Split the Difference today, and they could only take one thing away from this book, what would you want that one thing to be? You know, get out of yes. What does that mean exactly? You know, stop trying to get people to say yes. Nobody says okay. yes when they understood. They say that's right. Because when you've been articulating their perspective. Right. Now, that seems very smoke and mirrors or non-substantive. But getting that's right out, getting that's right out of people are always game-changing moments. Now, that would be the most powerful thing you could do. Now, there are a number of little skills. Like the book starts out with learning the phrase, how am I supposed to do that? Which is a game-changer. And it's like being able to hit a home run Every single time somebody throws you anything other than a knuckleball and then you get thrown a knuckleball and it's a swing and a miss and you're like, oh man, how am I supposed to do that is a game changing moment except when it doesn't work. And if you only use, learn that, then the moments that it doesn't work, you're going to, you're going to fall apart. You're going to be flummoxed. And we see that happen all the time, you know? I'm coaching somebody and they say, how am I, I used, I tried, how am I supposed to do that? And it didn't work. And so that reaction tells me you've been trying it. You've gained a lot of confidence because it was a huge game changer every time. 
And then the one time it didn't change the game, you thought it didn't work, which means you didn't learn anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I wish I could show you how much I have highlighted in this book. I, I read this. I was working with one of the sharks on Shark Tank, and I would commute from Queens to Manhattan every morning. And I would read every morning, every night, coming back home. I have so much highlighted in this book. I have so many notes throughout this book. It's incredible. I was just flipping yes. through it. And you know, I just wanted to throw that out there. I really appreciate the work that you've put into this, what you continue to do, you even hopping on this show. I want to end this with one last question before before well, I even so do we, that. We got to tell people how they can follow up, You know, how they can learn more from the Black Swan group too. That's exactly what I was getting to. I want to make sure that the link to the book is in the show notes, but what else do you have going on that we should make people aware of before I ask you one last question? Well, you know, subscribe to the new newsletter because we're getting back okay. to the in-person training business and we got all sorts of training products out there. Now, I'm going to assume that most of your listeners are domestic US. Yes. So the easiest way to subscribe is to use the text to sign up function. The number you text to is 33777. That's 33777. The message you send is black swan method, all lowercase spaces between the words, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-M-E-T-H-O-D. Black Swan Method. You're going to get it. If you if you hit the number right, if you type it in right, you're going to get a request for your email, sign you up. Whatever time zone you're in, you're going to get it on Tuesday morning. Actionable, concise, complimentary. Complimentary is nice, but if it's not actionable and if it's not concise, it's not going to do you any good, and it is. Now, the newsletter is a gateway to everything else and announcements about when we're doing in-person training events, announcements about different negotiation products are scattered in there sparingly. Mm. Again, the real value is the actionable, useful advice, but the newsletter is a gateway to everything we do. I love that. I will make sure that all of that information is in there. Any in-person trainings in New York? I'm based in New York. Any, anything coming up in New York? I think we're, uh, we're going to be in New York in October. October. Beautiful time. I'm a Libra. That's when my birthday is. It's going to be my gift to myself. Uh, oh, very good. <laughs> I love that. One last question for you, Chris. I, I would talk to you all day if I could. Uh, you gave us a plethora of information here, a plethora of knowledge, a ton of advice to say the absolute least. I mean, you have it in the book as well. If Chris lives to whatever year he wants to live to, he impacts all the people he wants to impact, right? Because that's what you set out to do. You That's how you define success. If you could only be remembered for one piece of advice, though, what would that one piece of advice be? Make the effort to try to understand other people. Make the effort to try to understand other people. That's a beautiful way to end this. I love that. Chris, I, I, we'll end it there. That That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you for the opportunity to amplify your message, make an impact with you on our community. Very, very grateful for it. So thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You have just tuned into episode number 252 right here on the Decoding Success Podcast with your host, Matt Labrie, featuring our friend, Chris Voss. Now, as mentioned, this is an entire masterclass on negotiation, how to negotiate, when to negotiate, with who to negotiate, the list goes on. There's so much within this episode, so I'm actually going to urge you not only to share this episode, but to potentially listen to it more than once. If you weren't able to pull out that pen and pad this time around, maybe it's something you want to do next time because this episode is jam-packed with knowledge. There's so much to go over, so again, Again, I'm just going to urge you to make sure that you're sharing it with the people in your life and beyond that, listening to this episode once more so you could fully grasp all of the concepts that are embedded within this episode. To check Chris out, all of his work, his books, his website, socials, all of that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.